spiritually, when we talk about a church on the move, sometimes we do have those mishaps, don't we? Sometimes we may fall. But what we want to do when that happens is we want to learn from that. We want to get back up and continue to move forward. If we want to be a church on the move. Some of you will remember the first series I did here. Matter of fact, I started it before I was even hired. When I tried out here in May of 2019, we went through this series called A Church on the Move. And it was all about being a church that never settles for here. Being a church that does not worship at the idol of the status quo. Being a church that is always moving forward in the call that God has for us. We want to be that church on the move. And the passage of scripture that we looked at, and we've looked at this a few times uh, since then as well, but it comes from Philippians chapter 3, verses uh, 12 through 14. And it says, Paul's writing here, he says, not that I've already attained all this, or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now leave this up for just a minute because we want to look at this. We want to look at, at what Paul is saying here. First of all, Jesus has taken hold of us for something. That's why we press on. That's why we are a church on the move. And as we better understand that, we better move forward in that. I also like the fact that, that Paul says, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. Sometimes the things behind us will hold us back, both successes and failures. Those failures will hold us back because we think we just can't do this. We can't move forward. We can't keep going. Let's just settle in. Let's just keep things how they are, nice and, and calm, and everything will be just fine. Because we're afraid of that failure. Other times, successes hold us back. Why? Because we think, oh, this, this, this worked in the past. It will continue to work. Let, let's Keep on. And at one time it worked great, but now it's not working, so let's let's revive this. Let's do something this. Let's, let's get this going again. And we continue to beat a dead horse instead of dismounting. I've shared the story with you before. John Maxwell, when he first went to um, Skyline Wesleyan Church out in San Diego, he held up a book, and the title of the book was called The Ten Largest Churches in America. It was written about, I don't know, 40, 50 years before he came to Sky. I mean, he held that book up and he goes, you know the interesting thing about the 10 largest churches in America in this book? None of them are one of the top 10 largest churches today. And he said, four of them no longer exist. They've shut the doors. What happened to those churches? I don't know the details, but I can assure you of this. Once they had success, they put more faith in the success of that program than they did in God. And instead of pressing on, they settled. Hey guys, this is working. 
keep doing this. And when it stopped working, they kept trying to ride that dead horse. We want to be a church on the move. Let me just say this series has more significance today than it did two years ago. We will do this again in a couple years. It will have more significance in two years than it has today. <laughs> but today is all we got. So we're going with what we got today, okay? Because we want to continue to move forward. If we don't continue to move forward, there's no sense in even having two years from today. Because if we settle in, if we're the same, you ever heard somebody say, I'm the same person I've always been? <laughs> they say it with pride, like it's a good thing. Okay? Let me just tell you, if you're the same person at 40 as you were at 20, you've wasted 20 years of your life. If we're the same church in 2024 as we are right now, we've wasted three years of our lives. We want to press on. We want to move forward. Forgetting what is behind and straying toward what is ahead. It's not easy. Not easy pressing on. It's not easy moving forward. It's much easier just to settle than it is to press on. It's a strain. It's difficult. It gets hard. It gets tough. Listen, 2020 was tough, wasn't it? As individuals, in our careers, the economy, the political scene, the church, businesses, Every, every area had it tough in 2020, and some did not survive. Some churches didn't survive. Some businesses didn't survive. But you know the ones that did survive? The ones that pressed on. The ones that continued to be on the move. While some churches and businesses closed, others held on for the ride and kind of stabilized. And others blossomed. New businesses began during the pandemic. Why? Because they pressed on. They kept moving forward. Forgetting what's behind and straining toward what is ahead, we press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. And so if we're going to be a church on the move, anything on the move has to have fuel, right? Over these three Sundays, we're going to be looking at the three things that fuel a church on the move. And the first thing we're going to be talking about today is the fuel of love. Any church on the move must be fueled by love. I love this quote from Mother Teresa. It says, it's not what you do, but how much love you put into it that matters. It's where that comes from. We can do all the right things, but if we're not doing it from a place of love, it means nothing. Matter of fact, I think Paul goes into this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in the first eight verses. This is referred to as the love chapter. And Paul writes, first of all, about the significance of love, and then he gives us a definition of love. He says, if I am able to speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have a gift of prophecy, and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am 
nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. You see, Paul talks about the significance of love there. We can even do loving things, but if we're not doing it from a place of love, it's empty, it's nothing, it's just a bunch of noise. Got to come from a place of love. So what is that place of love? Well, Paul goes on to give us a definition of love. He said, love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy. Does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. That's a tough one right there, isn't it? Keeping no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. And when love is genuine, authentic, and godly, love never fails. What a great definition of what it means to have this fuel for the church. A church that does not envy and does not boast. It is not proud. It is not self-seeking. It is not rude. It does not delight in evil, but the rejoices in the truth. And it keeps going. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It just keeps moving forward. It is a church on the move. I believe John gives us a good definition of love as well. A little shorter than Paul's. Um, it's in 2 John chapter 1, verse 9, and it says, And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commandments. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. <laughs> Isn't it interesting the way that's worded there? What is love? It's to walk in obedience to his commands. What does it mean to walk in obedience to his commands? To walk in love. They go together. You cannot separate those. Okay? Love is literally obeying God's commands. Obeying God's commands is literally love. I mean, this comes, these commands come from someone who is literally defined as love. God is love. And when we realize that God is love, we can understand that whatever he commands us, when we follow that, we are loving. That's how we love, is by following his commands. God is literally defined by love. Does that mean that God never gets angry? doesn't mean that at all. Matter of fact, if you've got kids that you love, You've probably been angry a time or two, haven't you? Am I the only one? <laughs> yeah. You've been angry a time or two. Not because you hate them, but because you love them. And when they do things that are going to hurt them repeatedly, <laughs> after you've worn them over and over and over, sometimes it makes you angry. But we are not defined by our anger. If our anger defines our relationship with our kids, that's not love. Okay? 
not a healthy relationship. But if our relationship with our kids or our, or our spouse or our neighbor or our parent or, or anybody, if that relationship is defined by love, sometimes we will get angry because our love is so abundant. But the anger is not what defines us. It's the love. And so what is love? It's to walk in obedience to his and what is, what is his command? To walk in love. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus was once asked, what is the greatest commandment? Of all the commandments, what's the greatest? And most, most Jewish people agree that there's 613 commands that you can, you can pick out of the Old Testament. There's a little disagreement on that number, but most of them agree that it's 613. And so this Jewish guy is saying, wow, there's so many commands that the, the scripture is full of. What's the best one? And this is Jesus' response in chapter, or in chapter 12, verse 30 and 31. He says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And in great Jesus style, he over-delivers. And here's another one, okay? You ask for one, I'm going to give you two. He said the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Over in Matthew's gospel, it actually says that all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love God with everything you have and everything that you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, who is our neighbor? Well, somebody asked Jesus that one time. And Jesus answered with a story. We call it the Good Samaritan story. <laughs> Tells a story about a guy that was beat up and robbed and left for dead on the side of the road. And this, this priest comes by and he just kind of walks over on the side of the road passing by. This Levite comes by and he just kind of walks over and passes by. All these people that the Jewish people look up to just passed him by. And then a Samaritan came by. And you know what the Jewish people, how they felt about the Samaritans? They hated them. <laughs> they hated them. I mean, some of them considered them worse than the Gentiles because what the Samaritans had done is they had intermarried with the Gentiles. And because of that, the Jewish people hated them. They didn't associate with them. But in Jesus' story, it was a Samaritan. The ones the Jewish people hated the most to stop and help the guy. And then Jesus asked, now in this story, who is your neighbor? Of course, what's the answer to that? The Samaritan. Listen, when we get nitpicking about exactly what it is, well, God wants me to do this, but how far am I supposed to do this? You know, I don't want to overextend this love thing. Okay, I just, I'm going to make sure that I keep it in check. And Jesus is saying, hey, your neighbor just may be the person that you hate the most. And that's who you need to love. You see, this love thing, it's not about, okay, here, here's my circle of love. <laughs> and anybody outside that circle, well, it's, I'm, not, I'm not concerned about them. These are the people that I love. I don't think love has any limits like that. 
We are called to love God with everything that we have. And to love others as we would love ourselves. All along the prophets hang on these two commands. All right. I'm done with the introduction. You ready for the body of this message? <laughs> I want to look at in, in at least three directions that we need to focus our love. And first and foremost, it is in the direction of God. As a church on the move that is fueled by love, first and foremost, we need to love God. Loving with everything we have and everything that we are. We call this worship. Now, worship is more than just the songs that we sing on Sunday morning. That's part of it. But worship is how we live our lives on a day-to-day basis. It's how we treat God. It's how we honor God in the way that we live and the things that we do and the things that we say, the way we talk to Him, the way we talk about Him. That's how we worship God. Talking about Samaritans, Jesus one time had an encounter with a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. And First and foremost, he shouldn't have even been talking to a Samaritan as far as the Jewish tradition goes, but especially not a female Samaritan. Okay? And here they were alone, having this discussion, and they're talking about drawing water out of this well, and Jesus starts talking about this living water, and she's like, oh, you know, tell me more about this living water. And Jesus says, you know, go get your husband, and I'll tell you both. And she goes, well, I don't have a husband. And then it gets personal. Jesus says, you're right. You don't have a husband. You had five. And the man you're with now is not your husband. You ever notice when things get personal, we like to have theological discussions. Because <clears throat> we don't want to get personal. We want to get theological. And that's what this woman does. <clears throat> she doesn't respond to Jesus's inquiry about her relationship status, she goes, well, you know, we say that we're supposed to worship on this mountain, this American said, but you guys say you're supposed to worship down in Jerusalem. Who's right? Now, I just find that story funny. He's getting personal about this lady's life, and she turns it into this big theological discussion. But Jesus goes along with it and uses it as a great teaching opportunity. And he says, a time is coming, and has already come, when the people that God is seeking, the worshipers that God is seeking, will worship him in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? First of all, our worship needs to be spiritual. It means the Holy Spirit is involved in what we're doing. He's guiding us. He's leading us through all of that. And it needs to be truthful. It needs to be honest. We need to have an understanding of who God is, and we need to be honest with Him. When we're singing words like more love, more power, more of you in my life, are we just singing those words, or are we literally saying, God, I need more of you in my life. Give me more of you. I don't have enough. I'm never satisfied. Give me more of you. That's what it means to be honest, to be truthful, to worship God in spirit and in truth. Not about all the other stuff that we make it out to be from time to time. 
In the 90s, we had this phenomenon in the churches in, in the United States of America called worship wars. Anybody familiar with these? It's when churches were fighting over whether we should sing traditional hymns out of a book or sing contemporary songs off the wall. Okay? And some churches split over this. Listen. We've missed the point when that is what we argue about. We've missed the point. Because worship is, has nothing whatsoever to do with the style or the speed or the volume of the music that we have. That says more about you and me than it does about God. God likes all kinds of music as long as it is honoring Him. Several years ago, there was a book written uh, by a Christian uh, rock group called DC Talk. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They were back in the, back in the 90s, back in the day. Um, but they wrote this book called Live Like a Jesus Freak. Isn't that a great title for a book? I love that. And in one of the chapters in that book, it was specifically on worship. And one of the quotes in that chapter said this. When we think about the mighty acts that God has done and will do as we lift up songs of praise, we will no longer see hymns as boring and contemporary praise choruses as too repetitive. Why? Because we'll realize that worship is so much more than that stuff. It's about lifting up praises to the one true God. We're going to be a church on the move. We need to first and foremost love God through worship. Secondly, love each other. Love other followers of Jesus. We're a church on the move. We need to be a group of people that radically loves each other. We call this fellowship. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Paul is talking to his apostles and he said, A new command I give you, love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You think Jesus is trying to make a point here? Three different times he says this. Love one another, love one another, love one another. First of all, he says it's a command. Kind of makes me think back to, to 2 John 1, 9 that we looked at earlier. His command is that, or love is that we obey in his command. His command is that we walk in love. They go hand in hand in that. A new command I give you, love one another. So it's a command. Secondly, he says, just as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Jesus says, I'm the example. Follow my example. You want to know what it means to love each other? Look at the way that I love you all. That's what I want you to do for each other. It was a sacrificial type of love. It was a love that goes beyond reason. And then lastly... He says, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I don't recall Jesus ever saying this about anything else. All men will know you are my disciples the way you dress. All people will know that you are my disciples by where you are at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. All people will know that you are my disciples because you 
pray before you eat your meals in a public restaurant. Well, listen, I'm not saying all that stuff is bad. Matter of fact, a lot of that stuff is good, but it comes from love. And the most identifying characteristic of a follower of Jesus is how we love each other. It's how we love each other. Rick Warren says we must be as committed to each other as we are to Jesus. And that directly reflects what Jesus said when he says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Matter of fact, we might take it a step further and say we should be as committed to each other as Jesus is to us. That's real fellowship. That's real love for one another. And we need those relationships. Rick Warren goes on to say, that we discover our role in life through our relationships with others. It's in those relationships that we better understand why we are even here. Third direction we need to focus our love is on those who do not know Jesus. Focus that love beyond these walls, loving those that are broken and without Jesus out in the world. Love them in the way that Jesus loved them. Compassion International is an organization that uh, through sponsorships, they minister to, to children all over the world, including the United States. It's similar to World Vision, if you're familiar with them. Um, my family and I, we, we're on our second child that we sponsor through Compassion International. It's an amazing organization. Um, used to, I don't know, they've changed offices since I heard this, but used to their office was in Colorado, and they had a quote above their door as you go into their office, and this was a quote. Being a Christian means having your heart broken by the things that break the heart of God. I thought, wow, what a good definition. As we look into the world and we see people that, that are suffering, that are broken, that are dealing with addictions, that are dealing with broken relationships, that are dealing with, with pain in their life. Really, that breaks the heart of God. And as followers of Jesus, it should break my heart as well. Philip Yancey tells a story of a minister friend of his and does ministry in inner city Chicago. And he tells a story about him coming in contact with this lady who had, who was a, a drug addict, and in order to feed her drug addict, and and she felt like to survive, she was involved in prostitution. And she began to break down through tears, just just started talking to this guy. And she even, you know, shared the fact that she had a, a six-year-old daughter that she had started including with some of her clients because they were willing to pay so much more. And as he's hearing this, his heart is breaking and he's thinking, you know, what do I say? What do I do? He knowing that he had to go to the authorities because of the, um, the abuse of a minor and that. And finally he looked at it and he says, have you ever considered going to this church for help? He said he'd never forget the way she looked at him with a disdain and said, the church? Why would I go there? I already feel guilty enough. I 
Unfortunately, sometimes we mess up as a church. I do believe we're growing in this area. And I believe there's fewer churches like this now than there used to be, but there's still a lot out there that think that their job is to make you feel as guilty as they possibly can. Let me just say, when people come into the church, they typically bring their guilt with them. We don't have to make them feel guilty. They're already there. They're already there. And if you, if a church has made you feel that way, whether you're in-house or online, let me just say, I apologize on behalf of the church. That was not in obedience to the command of a God that is defined by love. Tony Capolo tells a story. Of one time he was on a, on a speaking tour in Honolulu, Hawaii. And he says, when you live on the East Coast and you're in Honolulu, you find yourself wide awake at 3 o'clock in the morning wanting breakfast. And so he was awake. He was wandering the streets of Honolulu trying to find a place that was open. He finally found this little hole-in-the-wall place that deserved a name like Greasy Spoon or something like that. He walks into this place. He orders a cup of coffee and a donut. The guy behind the counter pours him a cup of coffee, sets it down, and then he takes his greasy hand and wipes it on his apron and then grabs a donut and flops it on the on the counter. And Tony Capolo says, hey, I'm a realist. I know the back in the kitchen food gets dropped and kicked and everything else. But when it's out in front of me, I would have greatly appreciated if you could take some tongs and grab the donut and put it on some wax paper. But that's not what happened. Tony Capolo said he's sitting there eating his donut and drinking his coffee when about 3.30 about 10 prostitutes just come into this restaurant and they just sit down and it's a small place, so they're on both sides of him. He said he's starting to feel uncomfortable and he's starting to finish his donut and coffee to get up and leave and he hears this conversation beside him and one girl goes, you know, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. And the girl beside her said, so what? I don't care if it's your birthday. What do you want me to do? Throw you a party? Get you a cake or something? And the girl goes, no, I don't want you to do any of that. I was just telling you that's all. I don't want a party or a cake. I've never had a birthday party or a cake. Why should I have one now? Tony Campolo said he made his decision right then. He waited for them to leave. And he called the guy from behind the counter. His name was Harry. And he said, I just got an idea. He said, this girl beside me just said that her birthday is tomorrow. He goes, yeah, that's Agnes. He says, her and her friends, they come in here every night about 3.30. He said, how about we do this? We throw a birthday party for Agnes tomorrow. He said a big smile came across Harry's face. He goes, I love that idea. And he called his wife back in the kitchen. Says, hey, this guy's got a great idea. We're going to throw a birthday party for Agnes tomorrow. She goes, oh, I love it. I'll make the cake. And so they, they make the decision to come in about 2.30 and start decorating the place and getting it all set up. They had the cake there. They had the candles. And he said the word must have gotten out because by about 3 o'clock, the place was packed with prostitutes. <laughs> and they had everything set up and everything ready. And when Agnes and her friends came in about 3.30, they all go, Happy birthday, Agnes! He said she stopped dead in her tracks and her, her knees buckled and her friends beside her had to actually hold her up. And Harry brought out the cake with the 
candles lit. And they sing happy birthday to her. And Harry goes, all right, Agnes, blow out your candles. And she just, all she did was stare at him. And Harry says, Agnes, if you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to blow them out for you. And after a few seconds, Harry blew out the candles. And he pulled out a knife and he said, all right, Agnes, cut the cake. We all want a piece of cake. Cut the cake for us. And she says, just look at it for a minute. Harry said, sure, it's your cake. You can do whatever you want. You can take it home if you want to. She looked up. She goes, can I? And take it home to show my mom. He said, sure. So she sticks out her hands and she gently grabs it as if it's the Holy Grail or something. And she slowly turns and walks out the door and down the street. And the place is completely silent. And Tony Campolo says, how about we pray? He said, looking back on it, and it seems odd leading a prayer meeting in a restaurant full of prostitutes, but it just seemed like the thing to do at the time. So he prayed. He prayed for Agnes. He prayed for her situation. He prayed for her salvation. And when he finished the prayer, he said amen, and Harry came right up to his face, and he goes, hey, you never told me you was a preacher. <laughs> what kind of church you preach at? Tony composed that it was one of those moments when just the right words came at just the right time. And he goes, I go to the kind of church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and Harry looks at him and goes, No, nah, you don't. There's no church like that. I go to a church like that. Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all go to a church like that? Let me tell you something. I believe that's the kind of church Jesus came to establish. I don't know where America got this other one. But Jesus developed a church and established a church and gave it a calling to love people the way that he loved people, to minister to people the way that he ministered to people, to reach out to people in the way that he reached out to people. Matter of fact, Paul calls the church the very body of Christ. And that's our call, guys. If we're going to be a church on the move, we got to be a church that is fueled by love for God, by love for each other, and love for those who do not yet know Him. Remember what Mother Teresa said. It's not what you do. It's how much love you put into it that matters. Listen, guys. The best use of life is love. The best expression of love it's time. And the best time to love is now. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the love that you have for us. God, the way that it has changed our lives. God, while we were still sinners, you loved us. God, help us to relay that love and reproduce that love for you, for each other, and for the world. God, help us to grow in our movement as a church on the moon as we are more and more fueled by this love. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.